Aloha, and welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I'm Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. And today I have a very special guest because he's a friend of many decades and a colleague. And he recently retired as director of training and interpretation at Monterey Bay Aquarium. Did I get that correct, Jim? This is Jim. That sounds good to me. (laughs) I know Jim Covell so many different ways. It's kind of uh, funny. And they'll be revealed in how we had this conversation, but uh, he's also been to Hawaii many times and uh, stayed at our home. And so he's familiar with the talk story term, which is kind of allows us to talk about everything, not just uh, interpretation. Jim, you know, I know more about your professional career than I do about your early years. Uh, When I was a kid, I spent much of my spare time in a creek seining for crawdads. I would sell the crawdads to a bait store, and then I would buy a bigger seine net and a bigger aquarium. I wanted to be you. You had the biggest aquarium <laughs> I know of in the world. So, But what got you started? How did you, you became a naturalist fairly early in life, didn't you? I really lucked out that uh, my father was the park naturalist uh, for the city of Oakland. And that was one of the first park naturalist programs in a city setting in the country um, going back into the the mid-1930s. And uh, so growing up, uh, I spent all of my spare time uh, following my dad around. So on nature walks and campfire programs and spending a lot of time around Lake Merritt and banding birds and doing all those things that that, uh, you might get to do later in in years as as a naturalist. And I had a chance to do that as a kid. So with growing up with that background, this was pretty much all I ever wanted to do. I thought, what a great way to make a living. If you could get somebody to pay you to do those things and and share that experience with other people, uh, there's no better way to spend your life. And so that's, I knew that from an early age, and I've been able to pursue that for the, the rest of my career. That's great. I thought I was going to be a high school biology teacher. I admired Mr. Mills, my biology teacher, so much that that was my career direction. And then when I found out you didn't have to do it in a classroom, you could be doing that out in the outdoors, I was hooked. So uh, that makes sense. And you lived in Oakland? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in Oakland and and uh, spent the first 18 years there in Oakland. And uh, I had a chance, I, I need to say also, um, just to... When I was 18, my dad was able to set up a program uh, opportunity with me for East Bay Regional Parks. And so I got to spend a summer working as an intern um, in East Bay Regional Parks and working. I spent a lot of time with uh, Josh Barkin, who was a legendary interpreter, uh, at least throughout the West, if not around through the country in the in the 60s and 70s. And uh, so that was a really formative part of my experience as well. Well, I wasn't very far away from you for a very short period of time. Uh, Fall of 1969, I was a doctoral student at Berkeley in marine phycology. And I was going to work with Dr. George Pappenfuss, a very famous, uh, I think, red and brown algae specialist. 
and he retired <laughs> the semester I got there. Oh. And I said, so will they get another uh, algae guy in? And he said, no, they'll go molecular. And so I didn't stay. And I, I ended up volunteering all my time at Point Reyes Bird Observatory. So I, I know a little about your neighborhood, but I also at my first professional conference was 74 at a Selamar conference grounds uh, in Pacific Grove. And mm -hmm. I met Josh Barkin and Ron Rousseau and uh, so many of those folks here. Well, Josh was well known throughout the United States, believe me. I was yeah. in Illinois and I thought he hung the moon. Yeah, I I have to to say that Josh Barkin's probably responsible for me getting my first job when I was interviewing with uh, Southgate Parks in Sacramento. Um, they asked me if I could do puppet shows and uh, which I thought was a little odd, but then the uh, the general manager, the parks had seen Josh Barkin do uh, what was our litter show? It was a, it was a, a great puppet show um, about littering and uh, Bob Oversteed had seen that and he said, I want somebody that can do that show like Josh did. And I said, I've done that puppet show with Josh. He's okay. You're hired. <laughs> I think I had the job at that point. <laughs> well, what's funny is I saw him do the puppet show with his wife, Pearl. Was that her name? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And uh, in 74, and I went back to Southern Illinois and started writing puppet plays and built a puppet theater, kind of Muppet sized thing. And I got a phone call one day from Scott Forsman, the, the publishers of the C. Dick run books, you know, the readers from back in the 60s and 70s. And they said, uh, we would love to see one of your puppet plays and maybe publish it in a reader. And I I sent it to them and it, it was like uh, a thousand words. It wasn't very long. And they wrote me a 3000 word letter telling me what was wrong with it. <laughs> <laughs> and so after I made lots of corrections, they did publish. <laughs> but Josh stimulated all that. and. Um, he did gutter walks. He did supermarket walks. Blew my mind. We, he, he loved to do different things and, and uh, riffs on interpretation, basically. And so, yeah, working with the Pacific School of Reg Religion on how can we find the inter inter intersection between uh, religion and interpretation and how does that fit into what we do out in the parks i mean he was always looking at the kind of the frontier and the edge and in, in interpretation and how do we make it relate to different audiences and so yeah poetry and mythology and and he was an amazing musician so working musician uh, music into it um so it was always great around josh because he was he was the definition of thinking out of the box in this business. Yeah. I remember too well when uh, I was on a hike with him, he pulled out a metronome and <laughs> set it. And he said, do you see that Hawk flying? That's a red tail Hawk. And this is usually the, the meter they fly at. <laughs> he, yeah. he said something like there's music in the air. You just have to be listening and open to it. <laughs> I, Some of our walks, he had uh a deer 
skull and bones and hide. And he had that bundle. He would go out in advance of a walk and scatter that around the side of the trail sometimes. And, you know, and then we would, oh my gosh, look, you know, it looks like, you know, the remains of a deer here. And, and, you know, and then we would consider, we would go on to, to build the deer out of all the bones and, and assemble things. And, uh, so, and, and, you know, people might argue that that was kind of contrived, but it was all towards creating the environment where you could do good education and interpretation. And, and that was his goal. Oh, I think that's fantastic. I, I admired that so much. And I like interpreters often do. I stole a lot of the ideas and <laughs> did my own adaptation, but uh, for at least the 50 years since then, I've told people uh, Josh Barkin was the origin of a lot of that. And so you were in East Bay Regional Park District. Your your dad worked for that? Actually, uh, my dad, Paul Covell, worked for the city of Oakland. Um, he started there in the mid-1930s as a, as a volunteer, like a lot of us starting in this business as a volunteer, doing uh, bird talks and helping with banding around uh, Lake Merritt, which was the first waterfowl uh, refuge in the country going back to the 1870. And uh, so used to have a lot of waterfowl through there and a very active banding program. And uh, so he uh, started doing bird talks and then school programs. And the breakfast club was doing what now? So, so that was a local service organization that raised funds especially related to Lake Merritt. That was their focus. So they helped uh, fund building and operating uh, Ferryland, Children's Ferryland, which became very famous around Lake Merritt. And uh, and in the late 1930s, they had raised some money to help pay my dad to at least pay for some of his work on weekends around the lake there. And uh, and then in the after World War II, everything kind of took a... a uh, break during the war and after World War II, Bill Mott, who was a, a famous, um, started as an architect and then the director of parks and recreation with Oakland and Bill Mott loved interpretation and, and really believed in the idea. And he was able to get the city of Oakland to fund a position finally. So I think about 1947, my dad actually got on the payroll uh, as a paid uh, and it was a naturalist that interpreters were scarce in those days. The term hadn't really caught on yet. So um, a lot of people were working as naturalists and their focus was really kind of being encyclopedic about their knowledge of the the fauna and flora in, in areas. And so my dad worked as the city naturalist for his career there in Oakland. Uh, and that was one of the first municipal naturalist programs um, anywhere in the country. It all kind of grew out of that. And of course, Bill Mott went on to become the, worked with East Bay Regional Parks for a number of years as their general manager, and then California State Parks, and eventually the National Park Service. So um, his, and throughout all of his different positions, Bill Mott was a, a huge backer and believer in interpretation and really helped to support those programs wherever he worked. You know, I met Bill uh, when I was uh, executive director of NAI 
he was selected one year to help select the Freeman Tilden Award winner. And they appointed me and him, and I forget who was director of National Parks Conservation Association back then, but the three of us were the committee to do that. And so uh, we flew to Washington and uh, sat down together and got acquainted. And uh, yeah, a legendary figure in California and ending up being National Park Service director and very well known. That's an amazing series of things. First of all, in 72, I was hired as a park naturalist in Illinois. And by 77 or 78, we had changed the title to interpreter. And it was just the national trend that was going on. Mm -hmm. uh, I was acting, active in Association of Interpretive Naturalists. And they liked the term naturalist and preferred it. But as you know, most of us who call ourselves naturalists were actually doing a fair amount of cultural interpretation. Yeah. And uh, when we understood the term interpreter to embrace both, it, it caught on and we changed the title in Illinois. But uh, you went to UC Davis? Yes. Uh, just, yeah, casting about for where to go to, to college. And I came across a relatively new program at, at UC Davis on environmental planning and management, which had a good mix of kind of resource sciences, um, but also interpretation. They had a couple of interpretation classes there and and um, they had brought in a gentleman by name of Ron Hodgson that uh, had worked with the National Park Service and uh, as an interpreter and, and uh, started teaching some interp classes there at Davis. So it was a brand new program and, and a lot of the programs were closed when I was applying, but that one was so new it was still open and so I was able to to apply and be accepted into that program and uh, it became um, just a, again another one of those watershed moments uh, just the people that you meet and the the activities you're involved in and the and the classwork that you do uh, became really formative and uh, that was a remarkable experience so I just literally picking it out of a book and it turned out to be just an amazing fit for me. I really lucked out. And you did a master's uh, as well there. And I, yeah, I, uh, so, it, and I'd, probably a lot of people have had similar stories where you meet people and that leads to another opportunity that opens another door. And, and, uh, so at Davis, uh, I was able to, um, working my way through school, I worked for the wildlife department at UC Davis in their museum. Became really good friends, a good mentor, Ron Cole, that uh, had started the museum there. Actually, the museum started when I got there to Davis. So we were the, the first two people working on the collections there. But uh, Ron had a good friend that worked for a local park district. And so Bob Cordray uh, that I met there at, uh, at UC Davis, was a superintendent of parks at East Bay Regional Parks and or at uh, Southgate Parks. And uh, he said, hey, we're looking for somebody to start up an interpretive program. And uh, I don't even know where do you find people with that kind of background. And and I said, me. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's great. So, so Bob set up an interview with me and by golly, I wound up with that job. But it was just by meeting people. And in that case, it was meeting people through the wildlife 
program at Davis that that opened yet more day, doors. Uh, kind of unique, fun of knowing a gentleman. He was he was my first employer. I worked at an outdoor laboratory. His name was Dr. Paul Yambert. I, I say his name. He still is out there. He's got to be 96 years old now. He was the youngest dean ever at University of Wisconsin. And, and he came to Southern Illinois University, where I was, to run the outdoor laboratory. And he had George Mick Sutton for an ornithology professor. He had come out of University of uh, Michigan with a PhD and then went into the Wisconsin University of Wisconsin system and had his career there. And he just, he was an amazing wealth of knowledge of people and places. And he's who got me to my first professional conference, told me that there was such a thing. So people make a difference. And like you, you know, I had a BS in zoology and an MA in botany and they hired me. That was the reason they hired me. They didn't, unlike your situation where they use the term interpretation, they didn't ask me if I like to talk to people or they, they were just willing to put a expert who used a lot of scientific names out in front of an audience. And of course, I learned pretty quickly that wasn't a good strategy. When I think of where I saw you in more recent years at Ronneray Bay Aquarium, I, I think of the tremendous audience that you had there and the number of people it took to interpret those resources in that setting. Uh, you were director of training interpretation in, in more recent times, but you went through several titles, right? Yeah, I was hired on um, early on, a couple day, couple of years after the aquarium opened. Um, and it, and it's I I heard about that job through somebody else that I uh, worked with at UC Davis, a student that uh, worked in the museum with us, and and uh, Linda eventually went to work. And and I applied, and and again, I, probably because Linda put in a a good word for me. Uh, Steve Webster, one of the founders of the aquarium, hired me to come in, and basically, the role was to uh, train our volunteers to interpret the exhibits and tell the stories of Monterey Bay to that audience, uh, to our visitor audience. So I started out in that role as, as the coordinator of training. And of course the aquarium grew and, and so those positions grew along with it. And, uh, but my job always involved training volunteers and later on then training staff also to interpret the galleries and basically to tell the stories that we tell in 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 the aquarium of course that that program started with about 300 volunteers i think when the aquarium opened 300 and, uh, my about goodness. 300 and by the time i think when i when i think when i retired we had about 12 to 1500 volunteers there and of course they weren't all doing interpretive work they were volunteer divers and and uh otter sitters and all kinds of jobs that volunteers did there and and that was one of the hallmarks of the monterey bay aquarium when the program when the, the aquarium was being planned part of the vision was always that a lot of volunteers, a robust volunteer program was essential to carrying out all the programs and the mission of the aquarium that we couldn't afford to have all of the staff to do all those things. So having volunteers that could do a lot of that work, working along with staff 
was a, a big part of the philosophy and a big part of the the success of the aquarium. Uh, just interpretation wise, uh, we would have about 700, 750 active volunteer interpreters, we called guides at the aquarium at any given time. So I had a, I think I had a staff of about nine at, at one point with seasonal and, and full-time staff. And I used to brag that, you know, I have a staff of over 700 volunteers and, and I pay nine of them and the rest show up just for kicks to do that job. Yeah, I got a kick out of uh, Shelton Johnson when I talked to him. He said, I work for gasps <laughs> and uh, uh, for kicks, for gasps, uh, for sunsets. Uh, interpreters are out there for a lot of reasons other than the money. The money's not, right. not terrible, but uh, it's probably a little better over in corporate uh, venues for scientists or for people with deep academic backgrounds. Uh, I was always so impressed by the volunteer program there. How many people a day were going through the aquarium that would create that kind of demand for attention? Yeah, so our our attendance on a real quiet day could be maybe 1,800 people. On a busy day, it could be creeping up towards 18,000 people. And wow. uh, so in the, but like most people in parks and museums, you have seasons. So in our summer season, you might have eight to 10,000 people a day. And uh, then in the, you know, in the wintertime, quiet winter afternoons or days, you might have only um, two to 3,000 people a day. And then of course we'd get some of those days, we'd have six to 800 uh, school kids come through during the school season also through the aquarium. So there was always plenty of people to talk to. That was, uh, fortunately, that was, uh, that was one of the resources that we had to work with in interpretation is a fabulous audience. I actually went to uh, Arizona Sonoran Desert Museum and went behind the scenes just to learn about their volunteer program because they had such an amazing training program for preparing uh, volunteers to do what they did. I, I think roughly a semester college course before they became a volunteer doing programming out on the grounds. And he had something like 175 of them. And they had a waiting list two years long. You had, if you wanted to be a volunteer there, you signed up. And then a couple of years later, they called you. Did you, was it that big a demand curve in what you were doing? We had the, for a number of years, we had a, a waiting list of people to uh, to become volunteers, and uh, and it was the similar structure that uh, the training was sixteen was a full semester. I actually, when I I taught those classes, they were accredited through our local community college and also through the state college system here in California. So you could earn three units of, of science at the community college or state college level. So I had a lot of teachers that, uh, that liked to volunteer at the aquarium. They could go through the training and that would be credits they could use for re-upping their certificate for teaching their credentials. And, uh, and then they were always getting new ideas about uh, education, especially related to the ocean, that they could use in their schools. So we had a lot of teachers that volunteered there. But yeah, similar, 
people would go through that full semester program and and uh, um, of course people would decide that wasn't their cup of tea I would lose a few people along the way but um, one of the big jobs then after they completed all that was helping to to apply that background in our case in marine science but not to blow the socks off of people when they were talking to our guests so we realized we were overtraining people in terms of way too much detail in science and can we temper that with how you apply all that the the applied communications piece of it so we modified that training through the years to um, maybe take a little bit of the Latin out of it and and make it a little more accessible science, trying to model good interpretation and not modeling lecturing about science quite so much. And, um, and as people went through their training, they started working as a volunteer with our audience. And I found that was really essential. That is, if people were actually then talking to the audience as they learned this marine science, then they could understand how they were going to use it. And that allowed them to process the training appropriately so that they could uh, they could learn new things, but they would learn how to to turn turn that into a story that they could use then to interpret to our general audience. And that made the training a lot more fun. Um, we stopped accrediting it through the colleges um, so that we could just do it as a a fun interpretive training program and uh, not worry about meeting all the academic uh, standards for it. And we had a lot more fun doing the training. And I think our, our volunteers had a lot more fun taking the training. I first got acquainted with you, I think, when we were consolidating AIN and WIA. Because yeah. Alan Kaplan was who I dealt with as president of WIA when I was president of AIN. And you took over in the middle of that three-year period. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was you and I that finished up the process okay. of communicating with our two boards. Uh, it, am I accurate that was when we first met? Yeah, we actually probably had crossed paths at, at even way back at the Asselomar uh, so yeah, but... meetings back in like 1974. But yeah, it wasn't until we started working together on things till when we brought these two organizations together. Yeah, and at the time, you know, I, I had been the president of uh, AIN at a time where one of our national meetings lost $25,000. So our bank account was empty. We had had $10,000 stolen out of our bank account at one point. And I went to a board meeting and said, uh, you know, what should we do? Should we go under and forget it as an organization? Or, And everybody discussed it. And we agreed we would wait. Uh, we would ask our creditors if we could have three years to pay them back. And we would start boosting our fees for everything. But I became really aware through that, that we were too small an organization and we were too fragile. And with a half, I forget at that time, we had a full-time office manager, but she was in Durwood, Maryland. And um, you had- a We had Doug Bryce doing a similar thing with, yeah. with WIA. And so mostly they were handling our membership funds and communicating with people about membership but it wasn't a professional staff. I was spending so much time as AIN president and I was 
director of a small nonprofit nature center in Colorado. And I, I was going, boy, this needs to be a staff person that's responding to a lot of this because the demand is out there. We're just not meeting it. Corky Mayo told me, at, uh, who was chief of interp at National Park Service back in those years, he said, we have 69,000 volunteers in national parks doing interpretation, 3,000 employed interpreters. And so like you're setting with 1,200 to 1,800 when you left, I'm thinking much of our field is being done by volunteers. Yeah, what you described uh, with AIN was pretty similar to the, the state of WIA, the Western Interpreters Association, at that stage as well. I guess maybe we had one advantage with WIA is that we always ran on a shoestring. You know, the WIA started back in the late 60s that grew out of a, kind of an informal group of junior museum directors that would meet periodically and talk about programs and funding and those kinds of things. And then a couple of state parks people jumped in. And there's a guy by the name of Chris Nelson that was at that time the director of the Sacramento Junior Museum and was part of that group. And, uh, and then Chris moved to East Bay Regional Parks uh, as their chief of interpretation. And, uh, and so that brought East Bay Regional Parks into WIA. All of these people doing these things on their spare time for the most part. And we wouldn't have ever had an organization if it wasn't for East Bay Regional Parks. They were putting out the newsletter that came out periodically and run off on the the Mimeo machine in the back office, you know, in, in their office run over at night. And, and uh, so it was really a couple of organizations that supported WIA heavily. People would take some time to uh, take a day off or two to do a workshop once a year. And we'd all do camped out in Yosemite or in somebody's park. You know, these were all really very informal kinds of things at a time when the profession was getting more formal along the way. So we realized the same thing that that we probably weren't on the edge of going under other than the fact that we were probably every year trying to figure out how to operate for the next year. But we realized we were never going to grow this on this business model, if you could even call it a business model. And, uh, and that became really evident to a number of people in both organizations. And that was when, yeah, we had like Donna Posey and Alan Kaplan, and um, we had a couple of people from WIA and a couple of people from AIN, and and they're the ones that really did the the heavy work on how do we merge these together and create into something that's going to have some horsepower. And I have to give them a lot of credit for for birthing uh, this whole this organization. Yeah, uh, we kind of Lisa and I told that story. Uh... Lisa Roshu, my wife, yeah. my training partner for 23 years, uh, she had done a market study when she was working for Inside Outside for Tom Christensen with NAI, I'm sorry, with AIN, Association of Interpretive Naturalists and Western Interpreters members. And most of them were saying, yeah, we'd be happy if it was one organization. So yeah. that was kind of the fodder I was using with my board to talk about it. But I was also talking about we need to be better funded, a, a bit larger. We need a professional staff, not knowing at the time I would ever become that, but just 
knowing that I was frustrated as a volunteer at how much was going untended that I would be invited to Washington DC to a meeting and would just go, I can't do that. I can't leave my organization and go away for uh, three days and do something useful for the profession. So we got her done and uh, 1988 launched the, the new group. And I, Lisa and I always grumble a little bit when they say that they're 35 years old now as an organization because AIN started in 54, WIA in 68. We always suggest, well, actually, we're 69 years old now. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we just got married along the way. That's right. And I loved your magazine. I thought The Interpreter was a much better publication than anything AIN was producing. We always had really passionate and talented interpreters and uh, that contributed to the interpreter. And so we had good writing. We had great cartoons. It always had that that kind of flavor. Uh, and I think WIA, if one of the things we contributed was that still that kind of family feel to this business. And uh, so I think we've kept that through the organizations throughout that, you know, it we operate as businesses or we try to operate as businesses, but if you are involved in any way, you come to any meetings, you quickly realize that it's still a family in so many ways. Yeah, I know getting to the annual national conference almost every year for 40 some years, I I was really aware that seeing the people again was important. You know, Chris Nelson, the very, that 74 meeting I went to, invited us all to his house the night before the meeting started. And so we went there and watched his uh, habituated bobcat walk around yeah. boots yeah. <laughs> I and it it just tickled me how close people had become how quickly and in Illinois you really felt like the Lone Ranger you know you your park the, the closest other interpreter was 100 miles away and you didn't spend any time with them and uh, it was such a disconnect coming along later you were uh, president of NAI when I was executive director. And uh, I have to say thanks that I probably didn't say enough when you were in that role. You were the most uh, open, helpful president I ever served with. In fact, you and I went to Florida once to a That's right. training event that really emphasized how critical it is that there be a partnership between the president of the board and the executive director and that you're you're pulling the wagon the same direction. You're not two horses pulling it apart. And uh, I appreciated that throughout your tenure and uh, probably didn't say it enough. I probably said more about what I wanted <laughs> to be different, but uh, thank you. Well, I, I, well, thank you for all of your work as the executive. I learned early on that, uh, you know, and whether it was, uh, my success at the aquarium was I hired really talented, dedicated interpreters and made sure that they had what they needed and then get out of their way. And, uh, um, you know, and I've seen good executives do that. And I thought that's, that's the way to do it. That was David Packard's philosophy was get the best people you can make sure you're taking good care of them and then get out of their way so they can do good work. And, 
that's always been my philosophy and I've been on a, a number of boards since that time. And, and, um, and I basically, it, maybe it's the case that I'm just too lazy to be an active president, but I figured, you know, find a good executive and, uh, and work closely with them. But the job of the, the board is to set overall directions and, and policies and then let the executive and the and the professional staff pursue those policies and and goals and do what you can to provide the resources to do that kind of thing and it, i've seen a lot of organizations that use that recipe and they prosper and i've seen organizations that that don't have that philosophy and they struggle on micromanagement uh from the board level i've had it at times because the nature center i directed was nonprofit and when I went there, had a board of 25 people, all of whom were biologists, and really wanted my job. I, I had good advice from a friend who was who worked a lot with corporate type organizations who said, you need to get people on the board that understand the real role of board members. And over time, we got that done. But it, it was a challenge. And I really appreciated the, the support I got from you in that role. We, we created the interpretive guide program, and I believe you use that quite a bit in your own training, am I correct? Yeah. In our case at the aquarium, it happened, and you'd like to think that we really researched what would be the appropriate term, and uh, but it turned out that um, we were thinking about docents, and one of the um, grandkids, <laughs> David Lucille Packard, uh, so that sounds a lot like donuts. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> so, and they thought, okay, well then, if they're not going to be docents, what else is that? Well, they're going to guide people around the aquarium. And originally, we thought that very few people would come through on a day at the aquarium. So our volunteers would would guide you on your tour around through the aquarium. And when you've got 10,000 people a day, you're not going to take everybody on a tour through the aquarium. But by then, the the the, the term guide had stuck. And everybody just kind of liked that. So it, it's been there ever since. And, uh, and they're not donuts. Yeah. <laughs> well, and amazingly, I, I have to back up a minute and, and pay some homage to David Packard. He grew up in Pueblo, Colorado. That's where I ran a nature center. A couple of years into my tenure in Pueblo, a guy named Cole Wilbur, the uh, director of the Packard Foundation, David and Lucille Packard Foundation, showed up in Pueblo and he said, uh, David grew up here and he wants to invest money back in the community doing good works. And we like what you're doing at the Nature Center. And they very much became uh, a supporter of a kind I didn't appreciate at first because he wouldn't just give us money. He would give us advice <laughs> And his advice always, you could take his advice to the bank with their money. It was always good advice. And I got better at what I did because of it. Uh, one time we had a neighbor property. This The bluffs along the Arkansas River are beautiful. He decided to let a gravel miner take the top 20 to 30 feet off the bluff. They had created a gravel lease. And we were very frustrated. When I sat down with my board president, I, we decided that we should contact David Packard and see if there was any workaround he could help with. And literally two or three days later, we got a phone call uh, from Cole Wilbur again saying, David has bought the property and there will be no gravel mine. 
I, I know you've had Julie Packard, his daughter is a executive director at the Aquarium. Mm -hmm. They've been deep pockets. Yeah, we always talk about David and Lucille Packard uh, building the aquarium. And indeed, they put up the, you know, uh, close to $160 million to build the original aquarium, um, which was a huge thing. And and his philosophy was, okay, you are, you've got a great aquarium, you're opening, you don't owe anything. So, but now you're on, uh, on your own. And if you make good decisions and have good programs and services, you'll prosper. And if not, you'll struggle. Um, but you don't have to pay off any debt. So here you go. And uh, so I've come to appreciate that through the years that imagine if, you know, you started in life and somebody um, gave you your home that you lived in, all of the things that you could do when you weren't poor, paying that mortgage. And that's why we've been able to do amazing education programs free of charge and all the things the aquarium has done because we have never been uh, saddled with any debt. But I also have to give the Packards a lot of credit for building a pretty amazing organization as well. And uh, then that's something that you would only really know and appreciate having worked in or closely with the aquarium and through the years, just the philosophy behind things, the, the way we support things, the way we make decisions, um, that has been a remarkable part of my career has just been that experience to see how an organization can run well and accomplish amazing things. Well, and when you were president, one of the things you said to me at one point was, uh, are you familiar with logic models? I said, no. You said they're going to end up being a very important part of securing money from foundations. They're going to start asking for them. And uh, I started looking into it. There was a great publication by I think Kellogg put something Kellogg out Foundation. there. Yeah. yeah. And I read that. And uh, in later years, Lisa and I would use logic models as a part of consulting work with nonprofit organizations, helping them construct one that explained to funders the real measurable results you would get by getting their funding. I, I was aware you were in a much more enlightened uh, training environment than I was through so many of uh, my years of work in, in nonprofits. And so that was a, a great contribution. It, it changed our life and how we did business. Well, I was, I was, had the gift of working with a lot of really smart people. And, uh, and I was smart enough to listen to them most of the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, it's amazing. You, you work with smart people and you pay close attention to them. You can get smarter yourself. And yeah. absolutely. Well, I, I felt like that's what I did by spending time with you. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Have you continued to train? Are you uh, doing teaching or training and what you're doing in re semi-retirement? Yeah, I, um, I still do some training. The, I trained all of my interpreters became interpretive CITs. So I have, um, Certified interpreter uh, trainers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so uh, a couple of my employee, former employees, because we were all retired now, uh, still teach at the local university campus here at Monterey Bay. I taught there for about seven years. And and then uh, I found it a lot easier to just go in and lecture in somebody else's class. So they're teaching classes now and I go in and, and, uh, and help out with interpretation 
classes there. I still do some training for California state parks because they have active groups of, of uh, uh, volunteers at Point Lobos and other places here. So um, come in and talk about interpretation to volunteers. And, and uh, for a number of years, I taught a class on interpreting coastal resources with California state parks. And uh, we haven't taught that in a while, but hopefully that will come back around as well. So yeah, I still love talking about interpretation and, and it has evolved dramatically uh, since COVID. You know, it has, <clears throat> has changed. Well, here we are, you know, talking back and forth uh, in a Zoom format right now doing this podcast. And uh, I think interpretation has and is going through a real revolution in terms of how we reach audiences and new audiences and diverse audiences. And, and we were maybe a little late to that party, but I think we're getting there rapidly now. And so I'm glad to see that. And I'm glad to see a lot of different faces in, in interpretation and a, a lot of new talent coming into the field. So it's interesting in the training, I find I still love doing training, but I've wind up talking a lot about how we used to do interpretation and now looking for, well, how will we be doing interpretation going forward? And I think one of the things I've been fascinated in, and I have to give you credit for turning me on to brain rules way back when, um, and have really focused a lot of attention on what we're learning about brain theory and how that applies to what we do in interpretation. And I think that's going to be one of the areas moving, be applying more and more to our strategies. So the, uh, the training I'm doing um, hopefully is trying to keep up with the training that people will be needing in this business going forward. Yeah. Dr. John Medina. Uh, yeah. Brain yeah. rules might be brain rules for babies or something for yeah. mothers that are, um, wanting to be aware of what your child is hardwired to learn. And I, uh, I've always been fascinated by it. Of course, I did my PhD in speech communications, and they had a lot more of that kind of focus than I had gotten out of the uh, other curricula I'd been around. So uh, it's been useful. I know I explained in a previous podcast, Dominic Canelli. Denali Aramark Tours was who originally spurred the idea for the interpretive guide certificate because mm -hmm. he had said, I've got all these great bus drivers. They take people out, they show them wolves, they show them grizzly bears. Uh, maybe they just give a litany of facts a little bit too long and don't know quite how to shape it into stories and make it more interesting. And that, that was the spur for creating the interpretive guide course. When I started trying to develop interpretive guide courses here, I found that the cost of that, both in time, commitment, and money, to be a huge barrier. Again, COVID caused NAI to go to allowing uh, interpretive guide courses online. We're continuing to do them out of our home, and uh, we get we've had folks from Russia, Philippines, uh, United Kingdom, all over Canada. But as you say, it's going to change the field because I now have students who submit their 10-minute thematic interpretive talk as a video, and then I'm aware it goes up on YouTube, and their organization is using that as outreach 
just to change the topic a little bit, part of what you've done quite a lot of is travel, and we've done that as well. In fact, we've been to Africa together a, a couple of years ago, and we're about to do it again in 2024 to Tanzania. What what has been your fascination with getting into these other environments and what are you still hoping to do? You know, and it's interesting, Africa has always held this attraction for me going back to my days working in the museum at, at UC Davis that I worked so closely with Ron Cole there at the museum and he had started out as a collector uh, for the American Museum of Natural History uh, in Africa in the, in the mid-1960s. And uh, so we'd be sitting there stuffing geese or whatever we were working on, whatever part of the collection was. And, and Ron would always have all these stories about, oh, I remember this time in Mozambique, you know, and, and I, so I, I heard so many of those stories. I felt like I had worked in Africa myself and, and yet I had never been there at that point. So um, I had a chance to go there um, with a group from the Oakland Museum, my first trip. And, uh, and just fell in love with the, the place. And it's, you know, the wildlife is amazing, but the cultures are fascinating as well. And, and just life-changing in, in so many ways. And, and uh, so my bags have always been packed for Africa, just looking for the next opportunity to go back there. And we've made good friends uh, uh, in South Africa at Cape Town at the aquarium there and, and uh, traveled around South America and, and East Africa and, and, uh, and South Africa. It's amazing. The, the diversity again of cultures, as well as the, the plants and the animals there. And then I, I have to give my wife, Christine Revelis a lot of credit as well. She loves to travel. And so she's always saying, well, yeah, we could go to Africa and we could go here. And, uh, so that has really gotten me, uh, more involved in travel. And of course, being retired now, you have more time to travel. So uh, you can spend more time when you get someplace and uh, and get a little deeper into the place. And I've always been a big fan of that sense of place phenomena. I think that's what we do as interpreters. When people come to our places, they are looking for a sense of place and they want to feel like they have lived there, that they are part of a place. So I've always tried to do that. It's been a challenge uh, interpreting the ocean at Monterey because that place is pretty foreign for people. So how do you give people a sense of place being in the ocean? But I always crave that myself. Wherever we go, I try and how can I get a deeper sense of place? And that is usually talking to people that have that sense of place themselves, the interpreters, the the indigenous peoples, the people that have lived and grown up in places are gifted in that way, being able to convey that. So now traveling is where can we go to a new place? Moreover, how can we really feel like we've always been in that place when we get there? And that's fascinating. I'm hoping as I travel, I can take some of those experiences and turn that back into our training to help other interpreters do a, a better job of conveying that sense of place to their audiences. Yeah, Lisa and I had the good fortune eight or nine years ago to get hired by USAID to train guides in Rwanda. 
our listeners can't see it, but there's a picture of a baby gorilla behind <laughs> you on the Zoom screen <laughs> using as a background. And uh, you went to Rwanda with us to to go up with the mountain gorillas. It was astonishing. Rwanda is one of those countries that after the 94 genocide, they recovered with a spirit of cooperation and collaboration that is astonishing, that is uh, heartwarming because they they had a, a lot to forgive in their communities and they worked at it. And Mountain Gorilla's success story in Uganda and Rwanda have been a large part of that effort of local villages and communities to understand another primate and help them survive. I know one of our focuses as we go back to East Africa and take people along on a kind of a package tour for a small group of people is always to try to hire as many locally owned businesses and stay at as many locally owned as you know well 20 years ago 30 years ago most of those tour companies were expats were people from Britain and they owned the companies we're now seeing guides buy their own companies or create their own companies two of the camps we stay at in Tanzania are owned by a former guide and it's great to see this the people who grew up there and know those cultures so so well become the owners and bene beneficiaries of tourism one of the things we can do as interpreters is to be good uh, consumers of interpretation yeah if if you look at it that way to when you go to other places there there's two things that i always try and do one is to vote with my dollars saying okay you are you're doing a good job and you are really working hard at this and and improving it and i want to do what i can to help you prosper with this so you know if, if i can provide some dollars or some back resources or whatever to help with with people that really are trying to do a great job and sometimes working against really against the odds to try and do a good job uh, in interpretation but also uh, we all have learned through our career that having a um, just a, a peer saying you're doing an amazing job i really appreciate you know i recognize your talent you're doing this well you know thanks for all of your work just that pat on the back that comes from someone else that has been an interpreter someplace else that has has knows how hard that work is and how you put your heart into it that can uniquely come from us as as fellow interpreters and so wherever you are when you can congratulate somebody um, support them if they make sure that they're going to get a, a meal for the next couple of days and the work they do um, as well as just that boost that you get from hearing from other people that is something that every interpreter should carry with them wherever they travel, even if it's just going to an, another park nearby, um, going to the volunteer or volunteers thrive on that, but professionals need it too. You know, Hey, I, I've done this work. I know what it takes and I really appreciate the, the work you're putting into it. Thank you so much. And interpreters don't get that a lot. Um, and so I, I try and pack that with me wherever we go. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think it's one of the things that we've 
enjoyed about training guides in East Africa is it's first of all, it's a very valued position. They they can make a living doing that if tourism is working normally. And uh, they appreciate the fragility of that entire thing that it, the COVID pandemic certainly dealt very difficult times for a lot of uh, conservation and tourism organizations. But uh, I, I think we have to show our appreciation to the people who do it well. And part of that's financial. Part of it's uh, if you're going to travel and be a tourist, make an investment in a program that deserves it. Uh, recognize that some exploit more than they support. So, well, I'm looking forward to traveling with you and Christine again. Uh, we, we are already packed and excited about it. That's <laughs> Well, we talk about it on a daily basis. And, uh, Lisa is doing a lot of serious planning to get us all ready. Thanks again for saying yes to having a conversation about this on the podcast. It's we always fun to talk story with you, Tim. That's yeah. Well, same here, Jim. We we get to see each other occasionally just on the island or in travel, but uh, it's a special pleasure to get dig more deeply into our kind of our interpretive roots. Absolutely. It's been a great opportunity. Great conversation. Thanks, Jim, for joining me today. And thanks to all of you for joining Jim Covell and I on Reflections on Interpretation, Talking Story with Guides and Interpreters. Next week on Friday morning, I'll be talking to Justin Legg, General Manager at Binbo KOA and Tour Director at Binbo Historic Inn. And you'll learn more about his interpretive trajectory. He was in a recent Certified Interpretive Guide Corps course with us. I'd also like to thank Mark Stoffel for use of Huddy's World, a cut from his Cookies and Cream album, and consider joining Lisa Brochu in an interpretive planning course via Zoom, August 21st to 24th at 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. Hawaii Standard Time. It is limited to nine participants, so register soon. You can get more information at heartfeltassociates.com. Have a wonderful day. Aloha. And right now, a little more in Buddy's world. See you next week. <laughs>